Today on the Talk Mormonism podcast, I'll be chatting with Dr. Taylor Petrie, Associate Professor of Religion at Kalamazoo College, where he teaches courses on the Bible and biblical interpretation, early Christianity, ancient Judaism, and theory and method in the study of religion. He's the author of several books and publications and is the current editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. He may be best known for his most recent work, Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism, for which he won the 2021 Best Book Award through the Mormon History Association. It's Tabernacles of Clay that Dr. Petrie and I will be discussing at length on the podcast today. The idea that Mormon doctrine never changes, and that the teachings of the LDS Church are without error, is a popular one, often repeated in Sunday school settings and general conference sermons. Most recently, at the October 2021 General Conference, President Russell M. Nelson instructed members to listen for three things during the conference, quote, pure truth, the pure doctrine of Christ, and pure revelation. These are encouraging words, and there were many messages that seemed to inspire and resonate with the church body. But many still wonder, what are we to do with the past? What do we make of the, quote, pure truth? from prophets past that we no longer talk about. It's encouraging that today we hear messages from prophets and apostles that denounce racism in all its forms. But there was a time, just two generations ago, when different men, in the same anointed positions, were teaching that segregation of the races was God-ordained, and that interracial marriage was a sin. It's hopeful to hear messages that speak of men and women as, as equal partners in marriage. But it wasn't long ago when the patriarchal order of marriage was taught over the pulpit, in conference, as eternal truth. And today it surely brings some comfort to some members to hear that being gay is not something that disqualifies you from divine love. But it was just two or three decades ago when LDS leaders were teaching that being gay was an ailment, and one that could be cured. So the question on many LDS minds today is perhaps, How can you label current teachings eternal truth and pure doctrine when past teachings have been brushed under the rug and are no longer taught? The church doesn't really have a position on that so far, but this is why I appreciate Tabernacles of Clay. In it, Dr. Petrie meticulously documents the changing narratives within the LDS Church that have informed and shaped its doctrinal perspectives over a period of decades. An accurate, transparent history puts to rest incorrect ideas about unchanging doctrines and the infallibility of our prophets. Taylor and I will be covering the Church's evolving views on race, marriage, sexuality, and gender in this conversation today. At the start of our interview, Dr. Petrie will give us his academic background and how he applies his work in gender studies to Mormon history. I'm a professor of New Testament studies. Uh, That was what my original training was in. Uh, But I worked on gender in early Christianity and uh, was sort of, you know, getting my graduate degrees in the 2000s as uh, the church was really taking on same-sex marriage as a major topic. And I grew, you know, interested in it, just kind of uh, following the news, following the the conversations that were happening online. And so, um, you know, kind of started dabbling in uh, thinking about the intersection of gender studies and Mormonism, um, you know, while I was in graduate school and then after graduate school. And that kind of ended up leading me to end up writing this history book about the history of Latter-day Saints and gender and sexuality, not necessarily what I was originally intending to do with my career, but uh, was an incredibly rewarding uh, experience as I kind of got to transition and learn a set of new skills and deal with new kinds of documents and and texts and and methodologies for studying uh, history in the modern era and bringing to bear some of the questions that I myself had about um, understanding this history a little bit better. I've heard you say that you kind of looked around and and noticed that this was sort of a section of uh, Latter-day Saint history that was um, just somewhat untouched, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not the case that no one had ever written anything about it, but I found that it was a little bit fragmented um, in the kinds of uh, approaches that people were taking. You had people who were kind of looking at LGBT history. Uh, you had people looking at uh, women's history. You had people... Um, 
you know, th- thinking about kind of other subsections of this story, but not really bringing them fully into conversation. And that was one of the things that I really wanted to to do with the book was to see a, a sort of a little bit larger uh, contextualization of some of these issues to see how they were interrelated. And I kept expecting that there would be some other um, historian of the modern era to kind of take this project on. And again, not to say that no one had done it. I, I learned a lot from the other historians who had, who had done pieces of this work. But um, I was hoping that somebody else would do it. And I kind of kept looking around, waiting for someone to do it. And I thought, well, I guess I guess I'll try and see how it goes. And <laughs> so that's, to the that's, plate, that's, right? how it, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're glad you did. You know, we'll, we'll get into uh, uh, gender studies. I, I wanted to talk just a little bit about that to kind of help frame our discussion. Um, but I, I love books like this that just uh, take a, a broad topic and then show the incremental developmental changes over time. And, and so your books spans uh, decades and and covers the the development and of, of Mormon thought when it comes to gender and sexuality. So I guess our goal today, we're going to try to condense something like 220 pages or so of your book down to a one-hour conversation. Are you up for that? <laughs> we'll sit. We'll do our best. No worries. Now, to, to start, um, bef- before we before we go uh, too much further, I, I had to ask, do you want to wade into, co- into a little bit of controversy right here at the beginning? <laughs> Why not? I, I wanted to talk about, you know, this incident that occurred uh, fairly recently, just about three months ago, you know, Elder Elder Holland gave his address to BYU faculty, and that's been on everyone's mind, I think, ever since. And I thought it would be good to ask you, in particular, as someone who has written extensively on this topic of LGBTQ issues, uh, you know, what, what your thoughts are on the message, and, and particularly if you feel like it will influence the kinds of scholarship we see in the future on these topics. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and it's interesting to kind of observe the the recent history of some of these developments, and and to kind of gain a deeper understanding of how they relate to long traditions and longstanding issues in in the church. In many ways, Holland's remarks were not really that far out of character from messages that had been delivered even in the recent past. He's heavily relying and quoting. Uh, on, a, I think, a 2018 speech that Elder Oaks had given at, yeah. uh, to the BYU faculty also, in which Elder Oaks used the kind of musket language, one of the controversial metaphors that uh, Elder Holland had used. And uh, Elder Holland is kind of drawing on that metaphor and extending it. And Elder Oak, Elder Holland is also drawing on uh, a 1975, explicitly a 1975 talk by uh, Spencer W. Kimball at BYU, also kind of taking a kind of strident stance uh, uh, that the, that BYU and the church were going to resist modernization and and uh, adaptation to broader cultural trends um, and uh, that it needed to kind of stand alone. And so this kind of, you know, stridency and uniqueness and 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 difference that that uh, that many Latter-day Saint leaders think that BYU needs to have in relationship to the larger world is um, uh, one that we have seen th- throughout history and it's not necessarily out of character. Um, with uh, with the message that church leaders would deliver to BYU, where I think that um, uh, Elder Holland's remarks uh, sort of landed a little bit differently is that the ground that the church is on right now is definitely shifting. And it's shifting among its own membership in ways that um, uh, that church leadership is not necessarily comfortable with. You know, so you see them going after and not just inviting Latter-day Saint uh, scholars at BYU to defend the family, but chastising them for not having done it enough, you know, um, and and to sort of start to, to blame uh, uh, even, I think, uh, LDS educators for this shift in um, broader sentiment among Latter-day Saints. So we're, we're starting to see, I think, more and more of these conflicts between church leaders and the institutions that they manage and the membership itself as kind of drifting apart in uh, on the some of the values around gender and sexuality that really dominated the last several decades of Mormonism, if not uh, the last century of Mormonism. And so we're starting to see, I think, these cracks happen and church leaders and members are going to have to navigate and negotiate those issues going forward. Now, before we go too much further into the book, could you give us just a, a very broad overview of um, uh, description of, of gender studies and, and how you have been able to apply uh, that study to Mormon history and, and thought? 
Yeah. Um, it's, uh, you know, I teach entire courses on this and, and right. there it's a huge field to, to just briefly summarize, of course, but, um, the field of gender studies emerges out of, um, earlier women's studies programs and departments that that you started to see pop up probably in the late 60s, but really coming to um, U.S. universities in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, uh, where women's studies was really kind of challenging directly the curriculum that um, uh, universities had had that were kind of centered around maleness, around patriarchy, around male history, male authors, and so on. And so we start to see that kind of transition and shift Gender studies is the sort of evolutionary development of that, which um, suggests not only that, um, you know, that we should, it, it sort of is inclusive of the earlier women's studies uh, uh, model about uh, questions around representation and so on, but gender studies starts to ask a little bit deeper questions around the constructions of masculinity and femininity, of maleness and female, femaleness itself, and starts to look at uh, gender, not as a sort of natural and biological given, but as a set of historical and social conditions and to be studied then in those contexts. So gender studies approaches are, are kind of looking at the history and development of ideas around gender. Uh, and more recently, we begin to see in the last you know two or two, three decades, um, uh, sexuality is kind of being incorporated into those larger questions. So the subtitle of the book is around gender and sexuality. Uh, they're often interrelated. And I think hopefully everybody who reads the book sees the way that gender and sexuality are interrelated uh, set of questions. And we're also starting to see another development in, in the subfields over the last few decades around thinking about race as a part of that story. Race doesn't make it into the subtitle of the book, but uh, but uh, gender, sexuality, and race as kind of intersecting uh, concepts in our society that influence the way that our institutions work, that our society works, the sort of norms uh, of behavior, norms of power, and so on that 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 are happening there. So it's a study of power. It's a study of uh, of social norms. It's a study of change. Um, specifically, kind of focusing on gender roles, gender identities, uh, uh, sexual norms and taboos and so on. Now, as, as far as your, the thesis of your, of your book goes, it seems like it, um, is sort of centered around this idea that, um, unlike what we might would assume Latter-day Saint history demonstrates that the, the gender has sort of been a concept that, uh, shifts and changes somewhat and somewhat malleable, right? Yeah, I think that's a good summary. I mean, one of the, I mean, the, there's there's more than one argument in the book, of course, you know, but um, but I think that you're you're kind of pointing at uh, one of the for me the things that was most surprising in the research. But I set out in the book to kind of try to understand a little bit better the history of the idea that gender was fixed, eternal, stable, unchanging. Uh, and I wanted to kind of understand when and where did that idea come mm -hmm. from in the LDS tradition and was quite surprised at how recent it was and um, how in many ways, even that idea isn't fully fixed, you know, even after, quote unquote, even after gender uh, uh, essentialism, this idea that gender doesn't change, that it's this fixed eternal thing. Uh, we call that gender essentialism as a kind of general philosophy about gender, even after that becomes more or less the official position of the church and other uh, uh, other positions are sort of driven to the fringe. It still dominates the way that the church actually acts and behaves around the ways that it's regulating gender differences, the ways that it's kind of designing its teachings. So it kind of continues to, to structure LDS thought, this notion that gender is maybe unstable, is fragile, has to be produced socially, has to be produced through legal and, uh, and ecclesiastical sanctions in order to create the differences between male and female. And the church has kind of internalized those ideas in the ways that it acts around uh, a gender while officially saying, this is where, you know, we're not into any of the details yet, but just, just, just to structure the basic uh, thesis of the book, that on the one hand, the church says that gender is eternal, that gender is fixed, that gender doesn't change. And at the, on the other hand, it acts like it's not. It acts like these norms need to be reinforced constantly. They need to be guarded. They need to be uh, uh, protected in some way. 
Otherwise, gender will change. Otherwise, the the boundaries between male and female will be slippery and will start to uh, fade away. So there's kind of this internal tension even after uh, uh, gender essentialism becomes the official doctrine that it still is kind of haunted by the the fact that gender is socially constructed. It, it continues to kind of inform Latter-day Saint thought. One of the questions that, that kept coming to my mind while I'm reading your book is, is how we got to a point where sex and marriage are such a big deal uh, to the LDS tradition um, and maybe what the beginnings of of this obsession was. I mean, it's, it's kind of littered all throughout the book that, you know, these general authorities are just, um, you know, tortured over, uh, these issues of, of, of sex and, and what they see as perversions of, of sex and gender. So I, I was curious if you could kind of, uh, enlighten us on, on where this, um, started as such a, as such a big deal. What, what do you think? Yeah, it's a great question, and there's no one single answer. Uh, I, I try to hopefully point to a number of uh, interrelated and braided, uh, you know, uh, concerns that the church has uh, throughout the 20th century, especially the second half of the 20th century around this. And some of it is uh, this idea that sexual practices themselves are kind of a, a key ingredient of maintaining gender differences. And so the worry is that, uh, especially around homosexuality, that that's going to erode the difference between male and female, that that's going to blur the boundaries between male and female. And so if you want to maintain gender differences, you have to have heterosexuality as the uh, as the idea. But there are a number of other ways that the church becomes really interested in sex and using sex as a boundary here. It's not just between same-sex relationships and, and opposite-sex relationships. It's also between races that be, that the church really, at an earlier era in the middle of the 20th century, is really interested in regulating sexual exchange between the races uh, by prohibiting interracial marriage. Um, and, uh, of course, that these ideas are are, um, uh, you know, be, become connected to issues of hierarchy in these relationships as well. Um, so, so uh, kind of maintaining these boundaries here between male and female, between different races, um, is not, is not a sort of a neutral activity, but is kind of in the interest of upholding, uh, certain, uh, certain parts of society as superior to others. Again, we're not in really any of the details yeah. here. We're just in the generalization. You got to read the book, I guess, to get all the details. But that's the the general idea there. I I, I observed that it even sort of bleeds into policing, um, uh, you know, married couples, even, um, you know, in, right. in matters of of uh, birth control and. Yeah, one of the biggest and most recent transitions that the church undergoes in redefining um, what kinds of sexual acts are allowed and what aren't is within marriage, right? That there was a time not that long within my own living life, not, not <laughs> right. in my adult life, by any means, but in my own living life that, um, you know, certain kinds of sexual practices between married couples were forbidden explicitly to be practiced in order to be eligible to enter the temple. And bishops were instructed for a brief period to inquire about whether or not couples practice these things. It was an incredibly unpopular policy. It didn't even last a full year. Uh, but um, but th there was a time when oral sex, for instance, was explicitly forbidden by the church as a practice that married couples were not allowed to engage in in order to uh, be eligible to enter the temple. Um, and And, you know, it's one thing to sort of look back and say, wow, that was, you know, scratch your heads. What was going on there? Um, you know, there, there was a huge concern about um, non-reproductive sexual practices as being unholy and impure. And the church really has to redefine sexuality itself over the course of the 70s and 80s to include non-reproductive sex as being legitimate. And for decades before that, the church refuse to concede that point, but evolves its own teachings on uh, sexuality, including what kinds of sexual practices can be used, can, can be engaged in, um, in order to, to attend the temple. And um, this is, a, this is a sea change. And, and it's, you know, people, I think, don't fully realize, don't fully contextualize the huge change that this was 
as again, one in my own lifetime where the rules about what you could do to enter the temple, the sexual rules changed pretty dramatically. We're, we're quite fond of saying, you know, uh, doctrine doesn't change, but uh, I feel like your, your um, book is sort of illustrative of the fact that it, it can change quite a bit. But, uh, and has changed very recently. Again, I, when I started out the book, I expected to find changes. Uh, I don't think I fully appreciated how recent those changes would be. You know, um, you know, I thought all the big changes are going to happen around the early 1900s right. when we're transitioning <laughs> from polygamy. You know, and I ended up cutting all of that stuff from the book. I was like, you know, all the really interesting stuff happened in the last 70 years, happened <laughs> in the lifetime of my parents and grandparents. That's where dramatic redefinitions of sex, sexuality, of gender roles are all happening. And modern Mormonism is best explained by that period rather than what do the scriptures say or what do, you know, what did Joseph Smith teach about this stuff? That stuff isn't really even informing those debates as they're unfolding in the in the later uh, 20th century. It's uh, it, it's much more recent to, to really kind of understand where our current teachings are coming from. They're all, again, pretty new. Well, you you mentioned uh, you mentioned race, and one of the um, comments that I hear a lot on this book is people open it up and don't expect to hear about race. Um, and so I wanted to see, can you kind of talk about how race fits into a book um, about sexuality and gender? We can talk about you know particular things like concerns over interracial marriage and, and race and lineages and, and LDS tradition. Um, yeah, thank you. And I, I appreciate that people might be a little bit surprised by uh, by that. And I hope that after they read it, they're not surprised at all, that it all makes sense. Of it, why, it makes sense why this is such a, Yeah, okay, that's good. That's good. Um, and, and I have to say that I was a little bit surprised uh, myself and also surprised at, in some ways at how obvious the point that I ended up making was to me. That was like, how did nobody ever say this before? But um you know, we often talk about the church's struggles over race in terms of, you know, a black white boundary or, or a boundary between uh, African people of African descent is not being have not being able to have access to the priesthood and the temple. And that's uh, uh, certainly true as far as it goes. And uh, so for most of the, the ways that people kind of approached the issue of race then was around kind of race as its own set of distinctive teachings. But when you start to look at what church leaders were saying about race in the 50s, 60s, and even through the 1970s, they were interested in a kind of, you know, uh, uh, racial lineages themselves. But those racial lineages were understood in terms of sexuality. Mm. And what I mean by that is that interracial marriage is the number one reason that again and again and again they say why you can't have why why uh, uh, people of African descent can't have the priesthood because if they do then it will the curse will tr will will you know be transmitted as interracial marriage is then going to be possible you know they're banning uh, uh, people of African descent from the temple and from the priesthood in order to prevent interracial marriage. And they say this explicitly again and again and again. And this is a very much a part of larger kind of segregation, pro-segregationist arguments that uh, that people are making uh, during the time period. Um, you know, when when you read Southern segregationists and other segregate pro-segregation literature, they're all saying, you know, if we have social integration, we're going to have merit. We're going to have inter interracial marriage. And so I wanted us to start to think about race as they were thinking about it as a sexual issue right, uh, during that time period. And and as I started to look and, and to consider what was going on in that period, it dawned on me that the most recent dramatic change that the church had in respect to its marriage practices, again, wasn't the transition from polygamy to monogamy as I imagined it was going to be. It was this huge cultural fight that we had about interracial marriage. And we had to decide, are we going to be a part of larger society by allowing this now legal and socially acceptable practice? Or are we going to become social pariahs by continuing to hold on to the doctrines that we thought were essential and unchanging? Latter-day Saints in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, for the most part, believed that racial lineage doctrine was essential to Mormonism. 
it's taught very clearly in the Book of Mormon. It's taught very clearly by Latter-day Saint prophets all throughout its history, uh, uh, was sort of doubled down on. And they said, you can't have Mormonism without a doctrine of racial lineages. That's what it's all about, you know. And we had to kind of completely redefine our doctrine and say, actually, that thing that we thought was so essential and so unchanging and so, uh, you know, uh, a permanent part of what our tradition is turns out to not be so permanent after all we can just change it you know um and uh, people people i think dramatically underestimate just how central racial thinking was to mormonism for the 150 years before we decided that it wasn't anymore um so anyway so i wanted us to look i wanted to start to think about the challenge over interracial marriage again one that happened uh, uh, not only it also wasn't resolved in 1978, it continued to be relitigated for the next several decades, even after the 1978 revelation uh, about the appropriateness of interracial marriage, um, was, uh, was a huge fight that Latter-day Saints had about, are these marriages going to be legitimized by our tradition or not, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, we had all the exact same fights and concerns of like, okay, well, it's legal, but that doesn't mean we have to have it in the temple. And then Latter-day Saint leaders were freaking out that we weren't going to be able to do temple marriages if we didn't perform interracial temple marriages. And what are we going to do? You know, uh, all of the same anxieties that we have about same-sex marriage today are literally repeats of the arguments that we're having, that we had about interracial marriage just a few decades ago. Right. That's what I was going to say. I'm having a little bit of deja vu here. Now, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask, um, so I had, a, I had a conversation along these lines with uh, uh, Matt Harris, um, and we, we talked about this, this very subject. Now, uh, as far as inter, the, the interracial marriage uh, situation goes, that's never been uh, like formally repudiated. Uh, ref, yeah, repudiated, refuted. Um, I mean, I, I shared with him an experience in which as a, as a young man, I continued to hear and, and, you know, of course, uh, North Carolina, um, would continue to hear, you know, allusions to this idea of interracial marriage and inheriting a curse. So is it, is it at all problematic? You feel like that, that that's a, a doctrine that still lingers out there in, in certain quarters. Yeah. And, and it lingers for a, a very specific reason, um, uh, which I'll get into in a second, but, uh, I, I sort of try to trace out in the book, um, that there are two doctrines about interracial marriage or two ideas about interracial marriage that emerge in the church. One is a doctrinal argument, uh, and the doctrinal argument says, uh, you know, there are racial lineages and, and God has commanded the separation of the races and, you know, each race has its own distinct destiny. And so if you start mixing the races, then their destinies are going to be all mixed up too. And, and so this we have like this a- obligation. Bruce R. McConkie, um, Marky Peterson kind of line of thinking, right? Yes. Uh, Alvin Dyer. I mean, there are a handful of church leaders that sort of believe in, you know, the uh, sort of literal inheritance of curses and blessings, you know, Israel and Ephraim are going to, you know, get, and those doctrines continue in our patriarchal blessings and all kinds of ways, right? We still have, we're still actually attached a little bit to these, including, as I said, the, the Book of Mormon is based on these ideas as well of inherited blessings and curses. There's another doctrine that emerges, um, and Spencer W. Kimball is the one that really forges it, uh, another teaching, I should say, uh, which is that there isn't actually a doctrinal prohibition against interracial marriage, but rather there's a sort of pragmatic argument against interracial marriage, that interracial marriages are, um, you know, uh, uh, risky to enter into, that they are more likely to fail, that they, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're based on not necessarily a shared cultural heritage and, and so on. And so uh, they're discouraged. And those arguments get conflated a lot, I think, both by critics and by defenders of the, of, of the arguments. Um, uh, and so I try to tease them out a little bit and show that one of the steps to kind of uh, getting rid of the doctrines of inter of prohibitions of interracial marriage is this sort of halfway step to say, well, it's not actually a doctrine; it's just counsel, and uh, so it sort of gets downgraded by Spencer W. Kimball from doctrine to counsel. Um, and then, interestingly, nobody that I could find, no no church leader that I could find after 1976 ever says anything about same sex marriage except that Spencer W. Kimball's uh, advice counsel against 
did I just say same-sex marriage? Against interracial marriage. Mm, Apologies. Right. <laughs> uh, that, that Spencer W. Kimball's advice against interracial marriage gets reprinted again and again and again. And it's in every single uh, institute manual and BYU marriage and family prep manual and in the young men's and young women's manuals. And the last I checked up through 2016, that quote from Spencer W. Kimball in 1976 advising against interracial marriage continued to be printed in LDS manuals aimed at youth. At youth. Um, and so, you know, again, even though it wasn't a doctrine anymore, it sort of continued on in these uh, in, in the form of advice and counsel. And, uh, you know, that sort of straddles that ambiguity, that Im- that ambiguous space where some people say, well, the reason why he's giving that advice is because it's really a doctrine or uh, uh, things along those lines. Yeah, that's I guess that's my uh, what I was driving at is when when it's not re- when it's not repudiated, then you see iterations of it for for generations and generations. Yeah. Um, now, what I feel like your book does really well is it sort of takes these, uh, you know, you know, doctrines, former doctrines or whatever we want to call them, and sort of unearths them a little bit and sort of um, demonstrates how they've how they've changed and developed into what we have today. And one of those that I uh, was particularly um, intrigued by is this idea of the patriarchal order. Um, this idea that there is sort of a divinely uh, instituted structure to marriage. And like you said, just like with interracial marriage, this isn't just, you know, a little, uh, this isn't advice. This is like um, foundational doctrine. Can you, can you talk about um, the patriarchal order and sort of how that fits into your book? Yeah. So, so as your experience may have been in North Carolina around interracial marriage, the notion of patriarchal marriage, the patriarchal order of marriage was a term that I heard, I felt like all the time growing up in the eighties and 1990s. And then there's just a time when it's never again repeated. <laughs> I think you can go back and find it sometime in the mid 80s. I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but there's some time when it's like it was that phrase was never again repeated in general conference. But before that, you found it all the time. You found it as the explanation for why the church did so and such, so, so and so and such and such, why it opposed the Equal Rights Amendment, why it supported certain you know patriarchal marriage and so on. And, um, and and so, again, this was a doctrine that we had around marriage that was considered to be completely unchanging. I mean, you can go back and find talks that say from Adam, Adam and Eve, the patriarchal order of marriage was instituted and, and Eve's transgression was an evidence that she you know wasn't following the patriarchal order. And that's why we have to always follow the patriarchal order, you know, a, a very strong sense that marriage itself, let alone society and let alone the church were best structured as patriarchies and they meant it as a positive term, you know, right. They, they, you know, they, they weren't shy about saying, yeah, we're anti-feminist we're patriarchs. We believe in, in male leadership, male rule. And um, uh, of course this becomes an increasingly difficult idea to hold on to as the feminist revolution is transforming our society. And the church is kind of slowly retreating till it eventually, as I says, completely abandons the doctrine just quietly. You know, they just never mention it again. Um, not to say that patriarchy and, and, and notions of, of patriarchy don't continue to operate in the church. Of course they do. Right. But we start to see softer and softer forms of that. What I start to call uh, soft egalitarianism in marriages to the point where we have uh, this kind of, you know, double language in a document like the Proclamation on the Family, for instance, that says husbands and wives are equal partners, and at the same time that uh, the the father shall preside in the relationship, right? Uh, where we have sort of speaking to both of these doctrines because they're both simultaneously existing in in tension with one another. Uh, about equality and about male leadership and male rulership and male uh, male presiding uh, happening at the same time. So uh, this is another, I think, huge transition that the church goes through and is still going through in some ways of a kind of retreat from a, a very strident patriarchy that it believed was 
God's commandment and essential to the church's teachings. And then it turns out, you know, over the last several decades, maybe you know, we can we can fudge around that. We can give a lot of ground. We, <laughs> right. uh, you know, we can we can continue to kind of modify that idea and maybe just ignore the fact that the patriarchal order is even a thing. You know, it's uh, other than a few places like in the temple and a few few other places where the the phrase sort of survives a little bit out of context. Um uh, you know, th- this was once a major theme in church teaching in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Well, it's almost like it it becomes less scary as time goes on. It's like, you know, it's uh, uh, this terrifying idea um, building up, but then, you know, you see it play out in society. You have egalitarian marriages and, and you know, the downfall of society hasn't happened yet. And so it yeah. almost becomes normal. And and you're exactly right. That was that was the language that they used was the society will fall without patriarchy. I mean, they, they were predicting civilizational collapse, uh, you know, all of the same things, uh, you know, you know, that we might hear again around homosexuality, all of that. Stuff, all of that stuff was are recycled arguments against feminism from the 1970s and so on. And so we we're sort of, you know, it is always deja vu, deja vu a little bit when you start to look at the the structure of these arguments. And then as you as you say, it turns out it's a lot less scary than we thought. And it turns out we can we can live with a lot more, uh, uh, you know, a, a social change than we thought we could. And we can make it compatible with the church, with the gospel, with the with with the teachings of the church, in ways that we, you know, were really out for, too far outside of our imagination before. The idea that women could wear pants was once hugely controversial in the church. Uh, you know, my mother was in college at BYU when female students at BYU were finally allowed to wear pants for the first time. You know, um, and, you know, these were these were ideas that church leaders were warning. If women wear pants, then the gender roles are going to be too unclear and we're going to have unisex bathrooms. Next thing you know, you know, um, and so, uh, you know, in, in some respects, they were right that social change was going to be the result. On the other hand, it turns out that those were social changes that we could accommodate just fine. And one thing that I found really interesting is this um, this bridge between um, things like feminism and uh, egalitarianism, and then that those things leading to homosexuality. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that this um, is really important to understanding their fears. And when I say, when I say their fears, I'm talking about general authorities' fears about homosexuality. Yeah, and th- this really speaks to some of those issues that we were talking about uh, uh, t- towards the beginning of our conversation. This notion that gender and sexuality are intersected and that they are interrelated, inter- interdependent, really framed a lot of the fears that Latter-day Saint leaders had uh, when they were opposing feminism. One of their major arguments for why you had to oppose feminism, why you needed to have patriarchy, is that feminism would lead to homosexuality. And their belief was something along these lines, that um, if women are able to act like men in society and vice versa, if men are not, uh, you know, in charge in some way, if they're not sort of in their rightful place as, as leaders, as patriarchs, if those social roles are blurred, then sexual desires will be blurred as well, that women will desire in mannish ways and men will desire in feminine ways. And, you know, again, they're literally saying this. This isn't just like I'm, you know, reading into what they're saying. They're actually saying stuff like this. And their their belief is their belief is that, um, you know, maintaining those strict boundaries between male and female is also the thing that's going to keep you from from having homosexual desires. And the the fascinating thing about this theory that they were putting forward is the idea that anyone and everyone could be gay with but for strong social roles and even legal roles, uh, uh, legal rules that would prohibit it. Right. And it was a sort of temptation that was out there that anyone might find themselves susceptible to if they weren't kind of practicing masculinity or femininity in, in the prescribed ways. And, um, and so this is where I think sometimes the earlier studies around uh, that separated women's history uh, in, in the church from sexuality and people who studied sexuality in the church separated it from, from issues around women. 
didn't fully grasp that these were completely intertwined ideas in um, in LDS thought for for decades, um, really up until the the 2010s. Uh, and the reason why is because these ideas actually structured the church's pastoral and therapeutic efforts to cure homosexuality for several decades. Um, up until today, you still see some of these cure ministries, LDS cure ministries out there operating. They, they've really kind of fallen out of favor in a number of ways, but they're based on this idea that um, you know maleness and or femaleness, depending on you know the the, the assigned uh, sex of the uh, of the individual, has to be practiced in such a way in order to generate the right kinds of desires. So they're teaching men how to work. They're, they're teaching men how to work on engines and how to play basketball. And right. they're, 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 um, you know, getting them assigned to sort of a masculine member of the ward who's going to, you know, teach them about being a man with the idea that if once they learn how to do that, then their desires will shift and re and be reorient reoriented in the proper way as well. So this kind of fluidity of gender and sexuality that the church, that I suggest that the church taught not only uh, before the proclamation on the family, which introduces the idea of uh, gender essentialism into the church, but this idea of gender fluidity continues to live on long after that, most clearly in the way that the church approached the issue of homosexuality as an issue of failed gender roles. I realized by reading your book, I was uh, recalled that I was terrible at playing basketball as a youth, and I, I would have been a prime target for this kind of uh, <laughs> for this kind of help. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. I can't. I can't shoot a free throw at all. <laughs> well, I, I noticed that this is you know directly um, at odds with what would later become the family proclamation, and it's ideas of eternal um, gender. Can you, can you kind of talk about uh, how that came about, the, the family proclamation? Do you see it as kind of a response? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And I think that, the, as I sort of it indicated earlier, right, I think that the family proclamation is in many ways a compromise document between different, different uh, theories around, uh, around gender and gender roles and um, uh, uh, sort of buttressing up against the feminist arguments that the church had been struggling with since the, its opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. So for the prior couple of decades, the church had been refining its arguments and its ideas there. And that it's also, even though it doesn't mention anything about homosexuality, um, explicitly tied to, uh, to the church's efforts to kind of oppose same-sex marriage, which it saw the church had come to see. And there's a you know, backstory about this that I get into in the book. The church had come to see that as the one red line that society could not cross without there being serious consequences. Uh, they had sort of made their peace with the legalization of homosexuality, uh, though it had opposed it at a certain uh, moment in its history, they had made their peace with, um, you know, uh, protections for employment of uh, LGBT persons. Um, but same-sex marriage was for them a kind of bright line that 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 would just be too devastating. And so the proclamation on the family emerges really in this context, and is again its response to homosexuality and its response to same-sex marriage is gender roles is, you know, that the, there are these two separate and distinct roles. Men are supposed to nurture, men are supposed to provide and protect, and women are supposed to nurture, uh, you know, the sort of heteronuclear family that, that sort of is put forward there. And then explicitly, again, saying society depends on this particular model of the family and governments. It's a call to political action. Governments need to make sure that they, that they promote it and protect it. And, um, and it's, you know, a kind of a, a document that that represents really the 1990s really really well. Uh, of course, that's when it's that's when it comes out. But it's it's best understood as a kind of evolution of church teachings, and in some ways a sort of midpoint for where it was at then. In in some ways, I don't think it's really even fully there as much anymore. We we don't see as much yeah. of the kind of men need to preside. And women need to nurture language as much anymore. Again, I, I don't mean to say that it's disappeared entirely, but even that is something that we've kind of walked away from in, in some respects. And so we've continued to see some evolution uh, of those ideas. Um, uh, uh, just the one last point on this is that it's uh, it represents a, a particular innovation that President Hinckley um, ha had put forward. 
because in, in some ways he's actually the person that is most adamant about the notion of an eternal gender. And he's uh, teaching this in earlier decades, but he's teaching it really against other church leaders and kind of popular ideas that had been circulating that suggested that gender was not eternal. And, uh, you know, again, there are historical precedents dating back to, you know, the early 1900s where people are kind of putting forward this idea of an eternal sexual difference. But in the mid-century, in the mid-20th century, there are lots and lots of church leaders and church members who believe that gender is actually a contingent feature of our, of our identity. And it can be lost uh, if we don't sort of hold on to it, if we don't practice it uh, perfectly in some ways, um, you know, in the next life, we might not be male or female. Whoa, 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 whoa. Taylor, are you yeah. coming on my program and alluding to the <laughs> TK smoothie? <laughs> the good old TK smoothie, of course, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, again, when when I first kind of came across these passages um, uh, as a young, as a younger man, as a, maybe as a missionary, and certainly in the internet age, as everybody was kind of was sort of this, you know, internet joke about Mormon history. I sort of had this sense of like, this is way more important than people realize, you know, right. this is not just some sort of like wild and crazy space doctrine of Joseph Fielding Smith, one of the most influential teachers in modern Mormonism. This is actually a sort of holdover, a representative of a church teaching that, you know, is eradicated by the proclamation on the family, but was once taught at the highest levels of church leadership that gender was not eternal. Gender was not eternal for, for mid-century Mormons. It was something you could lose if you didn't behave. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We've, we've gotten to the point now um, uh, on the issue of homosexuality um, in particular, where I think you could probably uh, find that the church's view is something along the lines of, uh, you know, it is, it is, an, it can be innate. Um, it's not, not necessarily a choice that somebody makes. Um, and to be a homosexual is not a problem. It's not a sin, but to act on it is. I, th I think that's sort of my best articulation of where the church stands now. But your, your book sort of outlines the way we've gotten to that point from viewing it as a sin uh, to even uh, be homosexual, to, to use the term, you know, to talk about being a homosexual, to talk about it in those terms. Um, and, and how it sort of shifted and evolved from being viewed as like a, a, a malady to where we are now. So can, can you kind of outline that trajectory for us? Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's so much to kind of unpack there. And, and so I, I, if there are other pieces, feel free to kind of build on it. But, sure. um, you know, the, the church's teachings on homosexuality, many people have, have come to believe that the church hasn't changed uh, on, on this issue. And I hope that anybody who reads the book sees that the church has changed a lot on how it approaches this issue. Um, you know, that's not to say that there was ever a time when it was, you know, condoned or, or fully accepted in some way, but um, that the church is kind of operating with so many different concepts here, really dizzying ones that even for you to kind of articulate the position that you did there. Um, you know, has a whole history of how we got there. And there are church leaders who did not think any, any of those things at various times in, in, in church history. Um, so, you know, one of the, think, one, of the, one of the, I think, most consequential developments happens when church leaders come to kind of accept psychological theories that homosexuality is a, uh, a psychosexual developmental misadjustment or maladjustment in some way. And uh, so the cure therapies that they come to are, are sort of based on these psychological theories. And these get merged with moral theories of homosexuality at the same time that to act on, uh, on same-sex uh, intercourse or same-sex intercourse, same-sex intimacy, same-sex love, all of these kinds of things would be uh, is sort of a moral sin. And, um, you know, kind of teasing apart these two different theories of homosexuality is, I think, a lot of the history and the story of the various positions that we've come to uh, around this. And a new theory then emerges um, that kind of comes to take hold in the church uh, very reluctantly originally by church leaders, but I think now more or less accepted 
of a kind of biological fixity, a sort of unchangeableness, or at least a, an agnosticism with respect to the origins of homosexuality. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and so the church is kind of left with really only one option here, which is lifetime celibacy. You know, it used to be that the church advised marriage as a cure, if not, right. uh, you know, various other psychological theories and approaches that would change one's desires. And the idea was that you did have to change. If you failed to change, you failed to repent. You failed to, you know, obey God's law. Your sexual desires needed to be heterosexual in order to qualify for, uh, uh, you, you know, the, 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 uh, all the good things that are supposed to happen to you in the next life. Right. Um, now the church is again, that's one of the major doctrines that the church changed relatively recently. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, of course, even being able to identify as LGBT is a, uh, or LGBTQ is, uh, a relatively a new innovation in the church. For a long time, it was completely forbidden to do so. Um, uh, there were people who were excommunicated without ever having, you know, held hands with a member of the same sex simply by identifying as gay and refusing to refusing to sort of disavow that identity. That was once seen as an apostate act for for a number of people. Um, so, uh, you know, the church again has has changed dramatically on a lot of these issues. And uh, hopefully, you know, anybody who kind of reads the book can help to see the way that, uh, that I try to tease out some of those changes and, and kind of unpack where they're coming from. What are the theories behind these ideas that the church is putting forward at the time? In, in wrapping up our conversation, I wanted to kind of talk about the uh, sort of the church's involvement, involvement with um, politics and, and trying to fight gay marriage as they, as they see it sort of coming up over the horizon you know, and, and particularly you talk about this shift in, I guess, sort of the way that they're framing this from family values to religious freedom. Can Would you mind talking about, uh, about that and what you learned? So the church joins a coalition of other conservative Christians um, uh, that are involved in a kind of political revolution in the United States in the 1970s that we call the religious right. And the religious right uh, kind of emerges out of the disaffected losers of the um, se segregation arguments. Uh, they, they sort of continue to fight these issues, but they actually kind of transform their arguments to, well, if we can't have segregation, then we need to have patriarchy. So they're, they, they position themselves as opposed to the feminist movement, specifically the Equal Rights Amendment. And the church joins this coalition for the first time, really, being able to make, um, you know, friends with other Christians that are in alliance with us, a kind of unsteady alliance, but an alliance with us uh, on, on political issues. And it sort of boosts us, rockets us into the mainstream, at least of conservative American culture. And uh, as more or less accepted, those, again, you know, put some big question marks because Catholics and evangelicals and Mormons all didn't like each other theologically, but agreed to work together on, on uh, political issues. But again, put us into those conversations. And so we sort of joined that, uh, that coalition. Originally, family values was meant as a uh, anti-feminist uh, slogan. It uh, transitions in the 80s and 90s to being an anti-gay uh, 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 political agenda uh, up through the 2000s and in, in, um, the anti-same-sex marriage arguments. The problem with family values as an anti-same-sex marriage argument was that uh, it was pretty easy for the same-sex marriage people to say, we are family values. We are, you know, you're saying you're opposed family values, but we are opposing our families. Are the, you know, we're, we're trying to create families here. We're trying to create stable, long-term, loving, committed relationships. And so, you know, in retrospect, it was easy to see how the same-sex marriage people could have a dramatic shift in uh, social consciousness by simply accepting the premise of the family values movement and saying, yeah, we're pro-family here. Um, and, and so it really undermined the credibility of the of family values as a movement in terms of its opposition to same-sex marriage. Uh, and so there's the kind of rebranding of these arguments in the uh, 2010s towards religious freedom, that same-sex marriage isn't a matter of family value. Opposing same-sex marriage isn't a matter of family values. That, that slogan had more or less become defunct, but rather a matter of religious freedom. 
And uh, you see the way that these arguments make their way into the uh, same-sex marriage Supreme Court decisions sort of preemptively. Um, They define the church's kind of uh, uh, shift uh, in a political strategy here. And it's a political strategy that other conservative Christians are also engaged in at the same time period of a kind of rebranding of uh, anti-homosexuality politics as uh, questions of religious freedom. And I don't mean to suggest that there aren't legitimate areas where there are going to be, you know, bumping up of competing values and so on there. There, there are, and, and those are issues that are going to need to be decided. But um, it, is, it, it is in many ways a kind of rebranding and reframing of a lot of the exact same arguments that they were making before. Uh, uh, but, but here, um, you know, trying to carve out sort of greater, quote, religious freedom to oppose same-sex marriage in ways that would, um, you know, dramatically limit the the rights of same-sex couples. I, I interviewed um, Emily Kaplan um, recently. Uh, she authored a, an article for Washington Post magazine. I'm sure right, yeah, it's a great article. Um, she wrote about the idea that there's this rising tide of, of Latter-day Saints, particularly younger Latter-day Saints that are more uh, of a more politically and religiously liberal persuasion. And so in closing, I just wanted to ask what you think of this idea and, and, and other research done by Janet Reese and others that show younger Mormons are changing their views on LGBTQ issues. And, and I just want to ask how you see that playing out in the coming years. Yeah, um... Uh, I, I don't think any observer of contemporary Mormonism can uh, fail to see that uh, not only is a, is a growing conflict coming, but that we're really already in it. Um, we're, we're at a moment, I think, when young members, younger members of the church and, and many you know, Gen Xers and even boomers, you know, whose children and grandchildren now are uh, you know, um, uh, coming out gay, trans, you know, uh, make, making these uh, making these transitions and, um, you know, members of the church who don't want to feel like they have to choose between their families and or, or, or their friends and uh, the church's teachings anymore. And, you know, as we started out the conversation, Elder Holland's uh, remarks, I think, really kind of exposed the fissures that are in LDS culture pretty, pretty dramatically now. Um, the idea that I think Elder Holland puts forward of, well, if BYU professors just teach the doctrine more, that's going to fix the problem, is probably a little bit of, of wishful thinking. Uh, I don't think that, that anyone can say that the church has not done a really um, uh, uh, re- put in a remarkable amount of resources and energy into teaching uh, heterosexuality as the only legitimate form of relationship. And yet, and yet church uh, uh, membership is, is really moving away from that idea uh, pretty dramatically, especially as, as you mentioned among younger people. I'm not a social scientist, but I can follow the, 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 the reported data that we get. And um, you know, uh, even just a few years ago, it was over 50% for younger members of the church who supported homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And I wouldn't be surprised if those numbers are even higher you know, four or five years later now. Um, so I, I think that the kind of uh, conflagration of, uh, of conflicting values here is upon us in, you know, from my perspective, pretty severe way, in, in a pretty severe way. Uh, I don't know which direction the church is going to go in order to um, resolve this issue or, uh, or, or not. Uh, it, it's very possible that the church leaders mean what they say, that they don't see any way out of this. And the only way forward is to sort of hold fast to uh, the, the elements of the tradition that they see as unchangeable and unchanging. And, uh, you know, so uh, I expect that the results of that will be very similar, if not, if not even worse, going forward to what we're already seeing um, in, in pretty dramatic fashion of uh, the membership really kind of not just not accepting that. Um, uh, It's also possible that church leaders will find a way through this and sort of muddle their way through as they did on gender issues uh, to make further accommodations that, um, you know, don't give up the patriarchy, for instance, you know, completely, but can sort of soften the edges of it, um, uh, uh, sort of find a middle path, right? 
Or it's possible that the church goes the direction that it did about race and just sort of do an about face and say, this is not an essential doctrine. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, the, the doctrine of, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is more capacious than we originally realized. And uh, we can sort of jettison these, uh, these uh, older doctrines for something new. Uh, a, a, a fuller expansion of kinship of family to include uh, people who were once previously excluded from these blessings. Um, that's another direction that the church might go in. I don't know which one it's going to go in. I wish I, I wish I knew, but uh, those seem to be at least the options that uh, that are kind of on the table. Well, thank you so much, Taylor Petrie, for for being here. The book is Tabernacles of Clay: Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism. And uh, I neglected to mention earlier, you're also the editor of Dialogue uh, magazine. So let's uh, encourage people to, to check out your book. Of course, it's available on Amazon. Um, and of course, we'll put a link in the show notes, but then also support uh, Dialogue magazine because there's always uh, good, good projects coming out of there. Thank you very much, Nick. It's a really great pleasure to get to talk to you. Absolutely. Same to you, Taylor. Take care. See ya.